to go ahead i'm listening this is dr kim and prof what's up um and welcome to another episode um how y'all doing how you doing i'm doing better than most uh <laughs> better than i was yesterday um you know i'm the cool black man shit that they say okay he's still with the cool black man shit <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, so for today's episode, we have a special guest, um, Brandon. You want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Brandon. Uh, by day, I am a higher education administrator. At night, I am a activist, educator, sociologist, all-around troublemaker, and disruptor of social constructs. So happy to be here. All right. Thank you. Ooh, that's- happy to have you. Yeah, that was a beautiful introduction, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that sounds like good stuff. Disruptor of social. <laughs> no, that was good. Uh, yeah, because there's a lot of things that we need to disrupt, which is a big part of what I do, which is all about, you know, the myths that have been created about who we're supposed to be, who, mm-hmm. you know, what blackness is, what LGBTQ is, all those things. And I'm like, nope is not exactly one thing. Mm -hmm. We're all complicated people, so therefore these constructs need to be complicated and we just can't be looking at them as one thing. So hence the reason for why I like to disrupt a lot of things. So you're a shit starter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I like to start some shit every now and then because some shit needs to be uh, stirred up because of the Mm -hmm. fact that if we don't, then we keep operating under these false conceptions and misunderstandings and we don't get anywhere so sometimes you gotta stir some shit up to hopefully get into a better place so hence i'm here and the other part of my introduction that i did not add was i'm a survivor of a lot of shit yeah 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 that's 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 what we like we like all of it um <laughs> but to be a survivor is a really powerful thing um uh-huh. also um so- it, you know, I want to say this before uh, we kind of get into your story. And I want to be clear. We always talk about going to therapy and we start start in, in, in the episodes of going to therapy. I don't know if we did that today, but we do want to encourage everyone to go to therapy. But I also want to be clear that this is not therapy, what we're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be therapeutic. Right. Um, but that this is not therapy. Um, but we think, well, one of the things that is important, I think, for people of color, for Black people, for pe- people of the African diaspora, is that we have a lot of stories to tell, right? And we're oral people. And um, mm-hmm. we don't often create spaces or have spaces where we just tell our story and that there is some healing in this, right? Um, so so I want to be clear about that, that, like, yes, we're focused on mental health, Um and on people healing, but that like, this is not therapy. (laughs) Now we may say things that can be used as therapeutic interventions, but we want people to also do their own work. And hopefully as we listen to the stories of our guests, that um, there was something that touches you that can help you through your own healing process. You want to add anything to that? 
I agree. <laughs> no, 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 I agree. Um, 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 but if I may, um, I kind of liken it to education. Like mm-hmm. um, that that we do not call education is probably more educational than that that we call education. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's like probably our appreciation for formal versus informal ways of being educated or our understanding of formal um, educational institutions as opposed to being at the house or being in the street and not appreciating that informal platform for where you are also educated. And this too is kind of like that. Like maybe this is not necessarily therapy where you sit on the couch and we go through a treatment plan, but this too can be therapeutic. Mm -hmm. This too can actually advance you and your ability to understand and cope in your own life. It just depends on how you look at the glass. Do I only learn when I'm in school? Do I only get better with coping in therapy? And are those formal settings for me? Can I learn those outside of formal context? Yeah. And another thing too is, no, you're absolutely right. I'm just like really sometimes like amazed at just the vulnerability and the things that people come on and talk about that are so personal and really brave. Um, um, because there are people really all over the world who are listening to this now. And so I just really appreciate you for being willing to come on, but all of our guests as well. And it, it, you know, if people need cookie cutter, clean cut, this is how, nah, like black people complicated. Like we complicated. complicated, Yes. Like, like we, we all of the above, (laughs) like we got, we got some, we got a lot of stuff and we're complicated and that's okay. Um, so if you need just a really nice, um, respectable presentation of black folks, it's probably ain't the space for you, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> and which is why we try and be a little bit more down to earth, right? So anyway, enough of that. All right, Brandon, let, let's get into some of your stuff. <laughs> I, I am interested in though, very, very honest about just that. where That's your a- survival <laughs> story starts like you say you're a survivor <laughs> of a lot of stuff what's that sure sure so just kind of a brief rundown about me um i am 36 years young uh in the span of that 36 years i have been through cancer three times i am currently going through cancer right now i have survived i'm a sexual assault survivor so i was raped when i was 21 um, I am a black gay man living in the United States of America. So, of course, that has all of its wonderful complexities related to that. Uh, my pa- my family hasn't been the most supportive. So surviving all of that. And I am still standing. And mm-hmm. I tell you, I grew up in a predominantly small white town where I was trying my very best to be myself, not really supported by the white side of the town, but also not fully supported by the black community in my town and still trying to figure out, well, what exactly does that mean for me and my own conception of myself? Mm -hmm. So I have survived all of that and it has not been pretty. It is not a made for TV movie. It's not going to be on Lifetime. It is ups and downs mess. I have been to therapy. I'm the biggest advocate of therapy especially when I was growing up and my parents actually actively dissuaded me from engaging in therapy which I really would have helped me in my life and really would have helped them also in their own lives 
Oh, and may I also mention, my mom passed away when I was 19, and we also had a very complicated relationship as well. So needless to say, I have just laid out a lot of stuff. And <laughs> the reason for why I lay out a lot of my stuff is because, yeah. as you mentioned with education, it doesn't always have to be formal. We come from a history of people where we told our stories to each other, and that was our education. Mm -hmm. We learn by example, and we learn through storytelling. And so for me, even as an educator now, I tell everybody, it's not going to be the easiest answer in the book. And even with the answers that are in the book, we're here to interrogate that, and our experiences are going to challenge that. And that means it is still valid because it is your experience. Yeah. And I think the thing that often happens is, is because, oh, it's not the regular or it's not the mainstream or we're perceived to be weird or any number of the other things that they want to label at you, then you want to be dismissive of that and you shouldn't be. And then that silences you as a person because you've been dismissed. I'm here to say, look, fully be yourself because trust me, as someone who's tried to fit in, I realized that didn't work for me. Coming to this and coming to being just out and proud and just putting my stuff out there took some time and it took a whole lot of storytelling. But still, I'm here to tell you that this experience may connect to you in some way. Take what you have with it and run with it, and I hope it helps. You know, part of it is not, um, I wouldn't say necessarily is like, um, it's like them saying don't speak, but I would say is um, because of how we socialize, we learn not to speak. Uh -huh. Um, and, and, you know, that's part of the, 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 um, oh, I hate to use this term, but I, but I appreciate my audience. That's part of the fuckery of, oh, of uh, gentrification because uh -huh. we didn't kick y'all out of this environment. We just raised the price and you guys couldn't afford it. All of this stuff is legal. Um, See, that's part of it when 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 you got a person who we didn't tell you that you could not um, advocate for your uh, people or that you could not start a nonprofit or that you could not preach or prophesy something outside of Christianity. We just put a lot of images in front of you and idealized and heroified people that you could not touch and that you had to like you 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 tried to reach the 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 uh, what do they call it the hem of their garment and it was it was so out it's so left field to get to some of these exes and kings and some of these people uh, uh 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 rosa parks and harry and so like when you read some of these beautiful heroic only positive stories of triumph and struggle and ideal character and morality like that type of abnormality as it relates to morality and ethics and character like it make you feel like with all of the flaws you know about you that you could never attain like it almost make it like not worth the while like why would i ever think that my voice mattered when this man who done all of this or this woman who done all of this they voice didn't even matter then or they had to go through all this and this is all that they got out of yeah, one of the things that I definitely tell people is that a uh, quote that says comparison is the thief of joy, it's mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. It really, really is a truth that if you constantly are trying to compare your story to the next person's story and feeling like you're not going to measure up, then 
you're stealing away your own joy and then your own resolve to do the things that you really want to do in life. And you have to, in a sense, kind of either mute that voice or, you know, at least recognize it so that way you can at least move forward because trust me if you end up comparing yourself or waiting around for someone to give you validation you're going to be waiting around for the rest of your life and living with a whole bunch of regrets so i definitely tell people you got to mute that or at least acknowledge it and so that way you can at least move on from it yeah yeah, yeah you got to accept it because it's still I mean, energy and that energy is still fueling. Now, it could fuel you to go into a deep demise and be depressive. It could fuel you to be envious and want to covet other people's things. It could also uh -huh. fuel you and motivate you to, like, go get on your own individual journey. So, mm -hmm. like, it's it's really on what you allow that energy to do to you. Like, but uh -huh. we are human, so, like, we're going to compare. Like, it is something that we just do, but... What do you do with your comparison? Do you always say, oh, man, my life suck because I'm only this. I'm not Jay-Z and Beyonce. Oh, man, my life is terrible. I could have been da-da-da-da-da. Or do you sometimes compare yourself and say, man, I'm so appreciative that even though my, my, my job took my hours back, at least I still got one. Oh, I'm so appreciative that even though I had a little cough, everybody in my family still living. Like, Or do you only compare yourself one way? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also give yourself grace and space. I mean, everyone's going to falter. You're going to have your days. I know I do where I have my days where I am incredibly hard on myself, where I cannot see, you know, past what I'm feeling in that moment. And I always end up coming back to the place of, you know what, that's okay. You yeah. needed to at least express that bit. And I tell I'm a big venter. I am a very big person into venting because sometimes you just got to get it out. Yeah, And if that's what you got to do for yourself, then that's what you got to do for yourself. So that's the other thing that I really hope people come away with is that, you know, even in therapy or anything else, it's not one way. It's your way. Mm -hmm. And that is perfectly fine with it being your way. And almost kind of like the radical acceptance. Like, mm -hmm. like um, kind of these are the things that have happened and have defined who I am and I'm okay with it, right? Because <laughs> like, like, I can't change it. Right. Um, so, yeah. Well, tell us um, kind of some specifics. I don't know. I'm, I, one thing, I didn't realize you were going through, you were uh, battling cancer right now. Yeah, it's definitely been tough. Uh, so the first time that I found out that I had uh, cancer, or I like to call it the big C, I was 11 years old. Mm. I was um, basically at the time thinking that I was going through like a upper respiratory infection, that kind of situation, go into uh, an x-ray and it turns out that I had uh, fluid on my lungs. When they took the fluid out, underneath that was a big, large uh, cancerous mass. So I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, went through chemotherapy uh, primarily and radiation and it went away. Six months later, XD number two. So it has come back. And now I have to go through a bone marrow transplant. And this was at 12? At this point, I am 12 years old. Okay. So still very young, um, you know, in middle school at this particular point. And now I have to go through a bone marrow transplant. Now, the interesting thing about my particular transplant is because my cancer had not impacted my bone marrow, 
I was my own donor. So mm -hmm. literally, they took the bone marrow out, they froze it, and then they put it back. Now, interestingly enough, I had to go through a quarantine because mm -hmm. of that. Because when you go through a bone marrow transplant, you literally have no immunity. So I was in quarantine for six weeks. That's so. Cool. Interestingly enough, you know, going through this experience, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, you've been through this. You <laughs> went through this when you were 12. So you, that's you why I'm well prepared. Right? You know, I'm very prepared. Now, so then went through that, and thankfully the... Well, um, let me ask you, you, so you were in the hospital quarantine? So actually, I was in the hospital for a week, and then the remaining time, I was at home. Okay. So this is very similar to how my quarantine experience was when I was 12 years old dealing with my cancer. Okay. So then, thankfully, um, the treatment was successful. And so I was cancer-free until um, <coughs> three years ago. And three years ago, I ended up uh, having, um, it ended up being found out that I had thyroid cancer. Mm -hmm. They took out half of my thyroid, thinking that it was going to be gone. And unfortunately, it wasn't gone, so I had to go back in to the hospital to get the other half of my thyroid taken out. So now I am minus a thyroid and still going through treatment now. So, yeah, you deal with it. But needless to say, you know, I have gone through this multiple times now. Um, I've gone through multiple iterations of it, done chemo, done radiation, the bone marrow transplant, you know, surgeries and things of that nature. I'm an old hospital pro at this particular point. That's a lot. I think that. <laughs> it is. It is. I can it appreciate, is. you know, I think that folks. I mean, I don't like the dentist. So, like, I just couldn't imagine. Yeah, do I. You know what I'm saying? I couldn't oh, the imagine. dentist is the worst. Like, going in there and I was, you know. But the way that we're socially, like, taught to think of cancer, right? Like, most people think this is, I mean, we know, like, when, if it's metastatic or things, you think one cancer, not multiple, throughout uh -huh. the course of a lifetime at such a young age. Like, you're still young. Like, you're... Yeah. Um, and the other thing is this, is that we don't talk about family history mm -hmm. enough, and I really wish that we would, because, for example, I come from a history of cancer on both sides. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't necessarily something, even when I was going through it, that we talked about those experiences. So, like, for example, my grandmother on my mother's side, she passed away from cancer and she had multiple cancers at the time that she passed away. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was a kid, I was maybe about four or five when she passed away. All I knew was that she passed away. I had no idea until, you know, later that that what she had passed away from was from cancer and also that she had made the decision that she didn't want to battle the disease. Mm -hmm. So when I found that out, wasn't until like later when I started going through my own stuff because then it was like it came up, of course. And then that's when I found out that my grandmother hadn't chose to battle with what she was dealing with and I know that that definitely played a, a part in me on battling it just because I didn't want to go through that particular circumstance but cancer also exists on my father's side sure. and you know we really don't necessarily talk about that so 
family history is very, very important because of the fact that, once again, it can help you govern your own life and just knowing that this could potentially happen to you. But also that shared experience of just talking about, well, what was it like going through it when you went through it? You know, even having that can be a source of support for when you're going through this to know that, hey, you went this his this family has a history of this and we've overcome it. So Mm -hmm. even that can be very helpful. Yeah. I also think too, though, like, yeah, definitely having more conversations and thinking about like how we talk about healthcare, even amongst black people, like mm-hmm. and our lack of understanding of so much. Like, you know, I met people who were like, Oh, well, my mama got diabetes and I and my daddy and I'll get diabetes. Like, you know, it don't necessarily mm-hmm. have to be like that, but maybe we should have different conversations about our health. Like there mm-hmm. are genetic links to type two diabetes, but there are also mm-hmm. preventative things that we can do to take care of ourselves to mm-hmm. prevent these things from happening. But so no, definitely. I think that and we're probably in a space right now where we are becoming more conscious of um, our bodies and our health and um, that there seems to be a movement amongst people of color. What do you think? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and let me also point out that even in the midst of what I was going through, it wasn't easy just because of other things that were also going on. Mm-hmm. I was not treated very well. hmm let me just say that and the fact that you're still an 11 year old dealing with racism Mm -hmm. you're still an 11 year old who's trying to you know figure out exactly who you are and you know there are these other things so you know i often like to tell people look i figured out who i was at six years old meaning that i knew at that probably particular point i'm black i'm gay and i'm a male and that is not an easy thing for a family that does not agree or understand sexuality to deal with, but all that seems to get put on pause when you're dealing with cancer, but it's still not necessarily fully on pause. So the thing that I tell people is that it also was hard because when I was going through cancer, I actually felt I was better treated by my family and by Mm -hmm. other people during that time than when I was well. So it actually was also very hurtful in the fact that when I got better, it reverted back to somewhat bad treatment. What do you mean? That I was actually wishing that I would get sick again just so that I can get back to, oh, we are concerned about your well-being. Oh, we are concerned about you. We love you. And we're actually outwardly expressing that we love you. And the reason why that's happening is because you might not be here. Mm. So for me, that's the thing that made it really, really difficult was because what it did to me was I'm no longer invincible. Cause you know, most kids think that they're invincible. That concept went out the door on top of that. It also developed this concept that the only way you're going to really receive love is you have to be near death. Mm. That you can't necessarily just be loved because of you. It has to be because it's in relation to you might not be here. So that to me was the difficult thing about dealing with it was, you know, here I am, you know, a kid trying to still be a kid, but you don't have that kid mentality anymore because literally you're dealing with a potentially deadly, you know, 
disease and outcome. But then on top of that, you're receiving better treatment than before you were. So it's a very mixed up situation because you're like, man, I'm loving the love. But why isn't it that the love can't be here unless I'm near death? And of course, that has, you know, other types of um, conceptions that are created for you, you know, as you keep moving on through life, because it did make it very, very difficult in terms of, you know, establishing, you know, healthier relationships, even within my family with, you know, why is it that you're always having to deal with something difficult? And then it does make you very, very tough. It makes you into a very, very hardened, tough individual because you've dealt with some things. And people are not necessarily very understanding of people who have dealt with things. So, like, for example, one thing that I didn't mention during my cancer situation was that my left hand got damaged. Literally, a nurse stuck me with an IV. The medicine went all the way up to a blood clot, came back, back down to my hand, filled up, destroyed my hand. There went my boxing career. You know, literally, <laughs> my left hand, I can't make a fist. I lost a significant portion of skin. I had to go through multiple skin grafts. So on top of that, I'm dealing with cancer. Now I'm on top of that dealing with a hand situation. And we all know kids can be horrible. And I'm here to tell you, kids were horrible. <laughs> situation. They did not understand. They could not understand why my hand looked the way that it did. They asked all sorts of inappropriate questions. I went to a physical therapist who took photos of me while I was in pain, mind you. And sharing it with other people and laughing. And I caught her when she did that. Oh, wow. She got mad at me because I was mad at it. And I'm like, excuse me, how would you like it if someone was passing around photos of you in pain and laughing at it? But in yet, you got to deal with it. So, yeah, that's the main thing that happened for me is that I'm dealing with all this and life doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. It just keeps going, and you're just trying to figure out the best way for you to keep going with all this going on. And so, ultimately, it does develop into how you kind of operate in the world, which is why a lot of my current way of operating with the world is, hey, you got to deal with it and keep going, because the world don't stop. Some of that real hardcore black people of resiliency. All right. <laughs> And I will say this, I love history. And part of the reason why I love history so much is because it proves black people, we go through some shit. But we also possess a lot of strength because we've gone through so much shit. But at the same time, we got to talk about it. And we got to be able to process it because if we don't, it does destroy a lot of what goes on inside of us. So mm-hmm. hence the reason why I'm very open about a lot of shit that I'm you know, going through because it's my way of helping to process it. But it's also another way of demonstrating resiliency for other, to other people. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of hurt. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of hurt. Definitely not a lie about that. A lot oh, of hurt a, and a, a lot of anger. It's a bunch of hurt. Mm-hmm. Like it's probably more hurt than anything. You oh know, yeah. Um, what's his name? Um, I think it's uh, I forget his name. Anyway, he got a concept called conditions of work um, in child psychology, and basically, um, it's kind of what you alluded to uh, the example that you gave when you said um, I felt like I had to be sick or on my deathbed for them to love me. And Mm -hmm. therefore, it almost made me fantasize and desire at times to be sick or be on my deathbed so I can, you know, be appreciated and loved and and receive affection the way I felt like I deserved it. Um, And them conditions of worth, they actually do affect us like that. 
You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. when, when when mama only hug you when you get A's on your report card. Mm -hmm. When when you only the good kid when you know how to recite stuff in church. When you you know like those conditions. And my mom was definitely like that, by the way. Mm -hmm. And 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 when you don't do these things, when when you step outside of you know the familial value system, then the affection is gone. The love is colder. Um, the the time that we spend together gets significantly reduced because. I don't love you unconditionally. Um, the way that I love you is based on these conditions of work, and and, and, uh -huh. it, make, and it and, and it does affect us in our future relationships. You know what I'm saying? On on not only our ability to love unconditionally, which becomes even you know rare, but it also you know gives us you know foundationally uh, our own value system. Like, how do uh -huh. I value other people? And and if I can be fair, it has a lot to do with how I believe I was valued, what how I think I am valued, how I think other people see me has a lot to do with the the value and the metrics that I use as I value and assess other people. Yep, all very very true, all very very true. Because yeah, definitely I would say, and even still now that comes up for me is the fact of the whole valuation system mm -hmm. of people is a very, very important thing to me just because, you know, I find it interesting when people say, Oh, you have to love yourself and things of that nature. I'm like, that is a learned behavior. No one ever just comes a baby doesn't just come out of the womb saying, I love myself. This is something that they actually have to learn. So I find it very dismissive when people are like, Oh, you don't love yourself. And I'm all like, no, no, no. You have to learn that and you have to be understanding that maybe people didn't come from the same backgrounds where they learn to love themselves. Mm -hmm. True. Or where they was discouraged from loving mm -hmm. themselves or, or where they were taught to hate themselves. Right. You know, we're taught to see themselves with like a negative lens. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm sensitive when people say little black boys are bad because I don't like for the little black boy to associate himself with being bad. Yes, he may uh -huh. have bad behavior. Yes, he may have been disruptive, but he is not disruptive. He is not bad. And uh -huh. I don't want them to associate themselves with bad and criminal and negativity. So like I'm sensitive about how adults, teachers and staff and parents, you know, kind of approach them with that language. I understand what they mean. You know, I understand what adults mean. However, it's we have to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. You know, if 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 we talking about the uh passenger or the driver, we talking about the audience or we talking about the presenter, we talking about the parent and the kid, like the the authoritative figure has to be held responsible for like this relationship. Like the 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 duty of the relationship is on me. Yes, the kid is a function of it. You know what I'm saying? Yes, the, the student is a function of it, but the teacher is held accountable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I had plenty of experiences uh, where the adult figures did not want to accept responsibility for their part in what was done. Mm -hmm. You sharing? <laughs> oh, I got plenty. I got plenty. <laughs> we listening. Sure. So another another really foundational experience, I guess, for me has been, as I mentioned, I'm a black gay male. 
And sexuality is something that we do not talk a lot about in the black community, uh, especially being a member of the LGBTQ plus community. You get a lot of things laid at you that are very incorrect. For example, that, oh, because you're black, you therefore can't be LGBTQ, that you got to pick one over the other, or that if, because you are LGBTQ, you're somehow less black. I'm here to tell you, none of that shit is, is correct. You are fully who you are. And it took a lot for me to get to that point because growing up, if I basically was told, especially by my parents, that you could not be that. My dad, he had this phrase that he would consistently say is that you can't be this because you came from my loins. And he actually used the phrase loins to talk about that. And I'm just like, well, dad, I'm here. So clearly <laughs> it happened. Um, my dad is a deacon at a church. So grew up in the church so therefore was always hearing these you know stories about you know how gay is against who is against who you you can't be that because it's against the bible and against religion and all that um as a result i didn't really fully embrace my sexuality until i left home because that was finally a place and a space away from you know my upbringing where i could be able to do that even though i fully knew in my head Mm -hmm who I was. It just was that I couldn't be able to date. I couldn't be able to talk about it. I couldn't be myself because there's real danger in that. I mean, my dad, um, literally, this story that I will share, I was on the phone with a friend, and it was a male friend. On the phone, just having regular conversation. My dad was on the road and had a flat tire. He calls on the main phone line, and of course, it's busy because I'm on the phone with my friend. Oh, this was back in the day. Huh? This was back in the day. Back in the day, right? I know, right? <laughs> Y'all, you know, call away and we didn't have it mm-hmm. and all that fun stuff. So the fun thing was that it, this was also early days of cell phones. So then my dad mm-hmm. calls my mom on her cell phone. She picks up on the phone and hears that it's me talking to this guy. So then basically she tells my dad, you know, Brandon's on the phone with a guy. That's the reason why you can't get through. Dad comes in and he is pissed he is charging into my room yelling screaming all sorts of stuff basically he boils down to this he's just like look you need to stop acting gay because we're not going to accept any gay people in this family you'll be kicked out you can't be gay so at this point i literally tell my dad the following i'm like first off there's no way to say someone is gay or straight based off of what I do because y'all love all the acclaim and validation that y'all get when I do really, really well in speech and debate, when I do really, really well in student council. Just because I'm not out there playing a sport does not make me gay or straight. So hence, that doesn't work. And then I boldly just said, what if I am? What if I am? I'm still the same son you raised, but I like boys. Now, granted, I know my father, so I knew exactly what was going to happen. He took a swing at me, and yeah. I ducked. <laughs> you knew I knew. I knew, I knew, I knew really that was took a swing at me, and I ducked. Because Definitely. that was interesting. Because th- how old were you? Do you remember? At this point, I was 17, 18. Okay, so that's pretty old. So was, there has been no conversation. year of high school. There was no conversation about your sexuality? Um, there was only earlier, there were earlier ones before then where they were suspecting, because I fully knew. My parents, they knew. They, they just knew. Never yeah, that's what I'm thinking. He knew. Otherwise, why would he come in there like that? 
Right. So he, I was like, so you, yeah, y'all known this. It's just that we've never had this. I mean, the only conversation that he and my mom ever really had with me was that it was bad and that it wasn't going to happen, basically. But it wasn't just because he said that um, or that he broke news, because like everybody said, it's not necessarily breaking news. It is because of his delivery as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody in the room see the elephant in the room. And the one who brought the elephant in the room has the most audacity to say, yeah, and it's the elephant. I Like, that's the problem. Like, right. fr- his daddy took the swing, not because of the news, but because, you know, that respect thing that older black parents are into. Like, this, uh-huh. was a, he is totally disrespectful. That's how I knew. I never met his dad. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> like, it, I, don't, I don't necessarily think it was because his sexual orientation became a headline. You know what I'm saying? I think it was because he has the nerve to say this. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, and who is he talking to? <laughs> like, right. And then here's the interesting thing. So the next morning, I literally wake up and my mom is in my bedroom and she gives me the same thing, but in a subtler Jesus tone, which basically was like, <laughs> you know, this ain't, this is against God. And if we ever find out you are out of this family, baby, and I love you. Oh, no, there was none of that. Oh, no, love. No, love. No, no. Mm-mm. Oh, my family. And it's something that my father is having to deal with now. We growing up, that word was not used mm. often. He tries to use it now, but that's because I'm like, we're older and a whole lot of things are missing, including my mother, because I'll get into that. My mom died subsequently about a year after that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it was not a nice way that she, uh, she passed the way that we ended things. And there's another interesting story related to that too. Um, but basically when, um, you know, with that, it wasn't even the love. It was basically like, if we ever find this out about you, that's it. You were out of this family. So I can go into the next story if y'all good with that. How did that make you feel, you know, just to know, how old were you when you had that, that conversation with both parents? So with both parents, like I said, I was 17, 18. This was my senior year of high school. And so both parents, you know, one day after another, they come in the room and they both saying the same thing in their own, you know, way. Hey, mm-hmm. if, if what we see mm-hmm. is really what we see, you got to get up out of here. And then how do you mm-hmm. experience that? Like, how do you, how do you take that in? Well, given the way that my family operated, it wasn't anything new. We were very much, a, it was a survivalist thing. You did what you had to do to survive. So like for me, you know how you talked about that whole, oh, your parents won't love you if you don't make certain grades. That's how mm-hmm. my parents operated. It basically for me was you were coming into the family, you were representing this family and you're going to represent this family well. So for me, it was always a survivalist mentality of I got to make an A even though I want to make A's for myself, but I need to to keep these people happy because if they're happy, that means I can be somewhat happy. Mm -hmm. If I don't, then my life is hell, and I don't want hell. And you guys had a system. They they understood that you were good at conditions of work and that you you never let them down. So, like, because they still love you, they just told, they just made sure you knew all the rules each time. And then the thing that made it horrible was the fact that 
love came in the form of materialness Mm -hmm. because it was like, oh, I take care of you. I give you these things. Therefore, I love you. But I'm like, you don't say it. So you doing these things for me, I don't internalize that as love. That's not, you know, my love language or whatever. I internalize this as this. is, And also, I also internalize it as this is a way for you to make sure that I don't say anything because Mm -hmm. there's no way for me to tell anybody, oh, these people are doing this thing to me because your cover is they we gave you this or we gave you this. How, therefore, can we be bad parents if we gave you this? And they did that all the time. And that's why I was like, that's why none of my family members ever spoke up. That's why no one ever ever intervened. Because it's like, oh, how can they be bad if they're providing all this? And I'm like, this is out of survival. This is not out of anything else. I still refer to my graduation day as my parole date. But even then, that wasn't true. No. I'm not going to be as hard on them as you are. <laughs> I can already tell. We have a very different, you know, like, uh, obviously, it's your experience. Um, right. But I have I have an appreciation for the generation before us, you know, uh, just appreciating what they deemed um, a man to be, what they deemed a woman to be, how, how they seen the standard of a family, and especially if we throw in the Christianity, um, and when I say Christianity, I'm appreciating how black people experience Christianity and the way that we stick to, you know, um, few Christian groups, uh, few black Christian groups burn down churches. I'm just saying that like the way that we stick to Christianity, we just have a very different experience. Um, and, you know, to appreciate that whole conglomerate of what makes like an individual like the way that they receive love and affection is like evident in the way that they gave it to us, which was not always peaceful, which was not always, you know, ideal. But one of the benefits of what they did is it allow us to like kind of critique our own version of how we see, you know, um, or how we experience love and how we, give love and and i definitely could understand that perspective the thing that like i said always just mitigated it for me was it would have been nice if they would have at least articulated any of that Mm -hmm. if there was at least i love you just for the sake of i love you Mm -hmm. it would have went a long way Mm -hmm. but that didn't happen it was always with conditions attached And so that's what always muddied the situation. And it got even muddier. Are they verbalizing it today? Was she, Mm -hmm. uh, he's verbalizing it today. Who, my dad? Yeah. Yeah, he verbalizes it now, but there's a lot of situations that mess that up too. Well, I mean, again, he may never respond. Mm-hmm. Oh no, I'm the fully way. anticipating that he's probably never going to respond fully the way that he, you know, that I need it to be- happen. But I've also told him he has to be okay with that because I have to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Because of the fact that I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to that place that you want. And then on top of that, you lost every right to expect that from me. Because when you had the ability to do that, you didn't. 
and you're a different person now, and I'm a different person now, but at the same time, no. Because, like, for example, when I went, when I went through um, my, third, my third cancer bout and I went through my surgery to remove um, half my th- one half of my thyroid, at that point, I was in a good place with my dad, and I made it very, very clear that I needed something from him. And the thing that I needed from him was the following. I literally told him, Dad, I have this belief in my head that the only way you and I can communicate or I can feel love from you is if I'm near death. So I need to divorce myself from that. So one of the things that I need from you is I'm going to go into this surgery. Don't show up. And I'm like, I know you. You're going to try to show up. I am actively asking you, and I need you not to show up. And the reason is, is because I need to divorce this history mm-hmm. that we have with each other, which is you will show up in my life when I'm near death. Because that's how I've been this whole trajectory. I need to divorce that. And I need us to build something else. I need to just, you to respect that. I'm like, I will call you. I will have someone call you to let you know I'm fine. All that. Don't show up. Just don't do that. What do you think that I did? <laughs> First person I see coming out of my damn sleep is him. And my blood pressure shoots through the roof. And literally all I can say, you know, Barely speaking, you know, after waking up was, I told you not to do that. You couldn't even respect my one condition because I needed this. I needed this belief to be divorced. And he couldn't even do that. And and are you under the belief that that is the only way for you to eradicate that thinking? It's not necessarily the only way, but it was one of the ways where I knew for me, this could help. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't even do that. So to me now, it has reinforced once again, I am very clear with you what I need from you and you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So So therefore, it is now once again, reinforcing all these other things in my head and all that. And just, it's just like, I'm like, nope, I need it. he had to go home because literally, like I said, my blood pressure shot through the roof. They had to kick him out. I didn't care how many, how long it took him to get to me or anything like that. I was like, no, he has got to go because I was very, very clear about this. This could, this is what I needed from you to be able to try to divorce some of this stuff. Because, you know, the other thing that, you know, one of the things I didn't mention is the other story I was going to tell was that in the span of that year of me coming out, my mom and I went through a horrible situation and she had passed away. And so there was a whole bunch of things related to that. So, you know, here I am with only one parent already having a rocky relationship that started out with there and all the other kind of stuff. And it's like you're trying to unlearn and trying to, you know, break down some of that stuff. You're trying to do the best things for yourself. And he couldn't even do that. I think when you say he couldn't even do that. It just, it just, because it's, um, what do you call that? Um, what is even? 
even would be an adverb describing a verb that would be the verb in this um so like i think when you use even i think when you use that i think it just sounds like he didn't even try and for a man to come walk across the street to the hospital mean he put so, towards some type of time energy and effort which to me looked like a try um again it's not the ideal try it's not the try i asked for it's not the try i was wishfully expecting but i think when you when you frame it like he couldn't even do that i think it dismisses what he tried to do which was nothing negative like he didn't come with a grenade he didn't come with i hope you don't make it out like he came with his form his version of love which he's not been excelling at your whole life but you know he have his moments you know what i'm saying maybe the type of environment he was raised around in they they didn't necessarily treat each other with sensitivity until uh -huh. it was a crisis and then you will see type uh versions of love and affection and warmth that you know one would say have been missing for a long time but this is just the way that they've been socialized like they get down very differently when it comes to life and death and crisis matters mm -hmm. and outside of that one would say that they're kind of cold mm -hmm. but you would have to appreciate the culture to appreciate them like this is this is a and this is not to say that they get a pass or this is okay because we understand it but this is just to say that we understand it and because we understand it i won't judge you as harsh as someone who does not understand it like somebody on the outside of the culture looking in saying oh he heartless he don't care no he not heartless He's just a product of how he was raised and how his dad raised him or did not. And he did the best with me. He tried. You know, I, I did my I I wasn't the easiest to raise. You know, part of it, we got to take our, our own contribution to it, too. Like, I wasn't the easiest to raise. Like, they dealt with me, you know, on some terms that I put my own foot in the mud. Yeah, they led me astray sometimes, and I'm mad at them about that. But I I did a lot of stuff, too. I wasn't the easiest to kind of guide and receive tutelage and you know what I'm saying? And that that was a hard truth for me myself to appreciate. You know, I, I want to say my daddy could have did this. My mama should have done that. But I wasn't the, you know, I was, I was hell on wheels. You know what I'm saying? I had my own. I had my yeah, own. I think that that's the thing is that it would be easy for me if I was hell on wheels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't even permitted to be hell on wheels. Yeah. Well, I, 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 and I'm going to say this out loud. I don't think you was an angel. <laughs> oh, of course I wasn't. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't think you was on your way to missionary school. I don't oh, think that. I, oh, I was pretty saintly. <laughs> okay, I mean. Because you were challenging really, even that. Pretty damn saintly. Yeah, like for you for you to say what you told your dad early age, like, no, nah, you, you, you've been saying stuff. I know that. <laughs> Shoot, no, that's just sometimes when you get fed up. And yeah. to, at that point, your cup it ran fed up this because it was like, and it's and it goes back to some of the things. And I've told this even to my parents um, when, especially when my during that last year after I had started going to college, I personally felt like I gave up myself for mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I gave you 18 years. This was, you know, like you just said, this That's is kind right. of an agreement. The agreement is, oh, I'm your child. I'm under your roof. I'm under your rules. All this other kind of stuff. Cool. 
I gave you that. I dealt with y'all's hell for 18 years. I played a game for free room and board. Right. And so now that I'm out and y'all still messing with me, it's like, what was the agreement? <laughs> what was the agreement? Y'all not sticking for y'all part of the bargain. Right, y'all not a million private bargain. I I went. I was the A, you know, the A plus student. I got into the premier university that y'all wanted me to go to and hid my admission letters to the other schools that I applied to because you really wanted me to go to that place. So even my choice in college wasn't necessarily one hundred percent mine. So I gave you all that, and in exchange, because of I, me losing a driver's license and not telling y'all. You come and steal my car that I'm paying for. You then emptied out my entire bank account, leaving me at this institution that I don't necessarily need to be at without any support or anything of that nature. And you basically are like dealing with it. And then on top of that, my last Christmas with my mother, you telling me that I'm a horrible child and my brother and sister are horrible children and you don't feel the need to do anything for us. And then that's how you then die and leave this world. Hmm. Yeah, a little angry about it. Still a little angry about it. We'll fully admit that. But at the same time, it was like, we had a contract. I upheld my end of the bargain. Y'all didn't. Sometimes you gotta be adjusted. You gotta adjust. You gotta adjust. Oh, I'm adjusted. The way I've adjusted is, they ain't in my life. And let me ask you, does that hurt you? Oh, yeah, it does. And I fully acknowledge that it hurts. But at the same time, it's what I gotta do to protect myself. So you, you, it it brings about an emotional hurt, I assume. Oh yeah, all the time. In what ways is it protected? It's protected because I'm no longer at their behest, and my life is no longer at their whim. In terms of, oh, if you don't do what I want you to do, I can literally take the ground underneath you away. Hmm. You do not get access to me to potentially hurt me. So yeah, it does create you into a very, like I said, hardened and very guarded person, and I am that, and I fully accept that. Well, you know. (laughs) Like I said, I fully accept it, because I'm like this, when you've gone through Going back to the endless amount of shit mm-hmm. that I'm dealing that I dealt with, mm-hmm. and then you don't necessarily have the support that you feel that you need to get through it. You then have to be right. It does harden you, but at the same time, you're also reminded you went through all that shit. Yeah. And you can go through all that shit because you went through it. Because even now, I operate the same way because. You know, like I said, if the people who are the close, who are supposed to be the closest to you can hurt you as bad as mine have done me, you can make it in this world. Cam, what you got? <laughs> I got a lot. I told y'all. Cam, this really hug zone, really. Like, I can hear a lot of it that's, like, really, like, where she excelled. Like, you know, I just, you know, I don't want to monopolize, of course, you know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a lot. <lost laughs> <word. laughs> 
<laughs> because no, it's be, a because, lot there. Be, there a is lot a lot, there. and I I don't know that I can quite articulate kind of what I'm processing, right? Uh-huh. Um, and I I think so. One of my things is right now I can't step outside of like my empath shit, right? Because I feel uh-huh. sad. Like it is making me feel like I I just think like. The and I know this ain't necessarily a unique story. A lot of people don't yeah. feel safe with the people who raise them and are supposed to protect them and love them, right? They are not safe people. Um, but that makes me sad. Like, um, as a mother, as like I think about my children, um, and like what I want for them, and like, do I always nail it? Of course not, right? Like that there are things that I will fail them at. Um, but I also think that people need, um, to feel safe, right? Uh Um, and it sounds like there was just a lack of safety. And even for like your last memory of your mama to still be like rooted in pain. Uh And then there's a part of me too, not, I don't know, I'm, that agrees with David that I feel like too, like for your parents to be, for your father in particular, a black man of that generation, who I can imagine the things that you were told about um, sexuality. Uh um, And what a man is. Yes. Uh Even to come to the hospital, like I was thinking about that. It's like a lot. Even the fact that like, even if he's trying, he really from the generation that should have disowned you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like no, his generation disowned that that that. Oh no, and he he you know definitely is. I mean, he's hinted at that, and he. I still here's my honest opinion about my father, and him and I have talked about this. He has always thought that this was a phase. <laughs> he doesn't. He has Parents no so concept stupid. of this in my life. <laughs> I mean, we don't talk about any element of that in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and I'm an activist. I'm out there as a black gay person. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about any of my activism. We don't talk about any of that because he, in his mind, he still thinks it's a phase. So that's what I think made it easy for him to not necessarily disown me because in his mind, it wasn't ever, it was never true. I mean, we were used to have conversations where literally I'm sitting there looking at the TV with him and he would literally just say like, so you're still gay. And I'm like, yep, still gay. He just checking in. I mean, he don't know. He don't know. He don't know. And all that. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, you could have easily disowned me. And since you did, especially with some of the shit that you pulled. Yeah. And and I want to say this. I'm also not saying, like, I'm not um, asking you to empathize with your abuser. Like, I don't don't want to dismiss that. Like, like, and be, you know. Um, just trying to, I don't know, I'm at a loss. <laughs> um, it, it, sure. it, and, I, and I tell it people, is, try to carry lot, all this, but, but, I, I carry it, I carry it with me. Yeah. But I, I'm also thinking though, like, like, so how do you soften? How do you open up to, to experience love, to experience, um, trust? Um, that is a very hard thing. I will admit that. 
that is a very, very hard thing for me to experience and also to try to let folk in. Yeah. And like a better go about it may be, are you into it? Mm-hmm. Like, are you into building trust or building a foundation of love? Because, you know, like, if it's one thing to know a person's areas of improvement, mm-hmm. but it's another thing to know those areas of improvement and be willing to be disciplined enough to, like, actually work towards them. Mm-hmm. Like, so to say, yeah, I know that I, I pee in the bed. I mean, that's cool, and that's one thing, but it's like, when are you going to start getting up in the middle of the bed, uh, uh, middle of the night, and going to the restaurant? Like, right. So to be able to identify an issue, you know what I'm saying? No, that's cool. That's step one. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But like, if I'm also saying I'm straight, and I'm good, and this worked for me, then, you know, it ain't an issue. Mm-hmm. Oh, I let people in. I let people in and I do. And like you said, it is a matter of you got to recognize your own patterns and then dismantle them. Mm-hmm. So that's you got to be interested. Like, so like um, the, 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 the best preacher can come sit right in my face. But mm-hmm. as I'm disinterested, it just wouldn't work. Like the best mm-hmm. teacher who've been preparing for one lesson for two years in a row can come mm-hmm. sit right in front of me teaching one-on-one. And if I'm disinterested, it won't. Like my desire to give a damn has to be one of the ingredients for that message oh, yeah. to like transmit. Oh yeah, that interest has got to be there. Because if you ain't interested, you ain't going to be in it. And that's how it is. Mm -hmm. And where are you? With respect to? Your interests. (laughs) And I I would like to know where are you with respect to being interested in in improving on the relationship with your father? Perfectly honest with respect to that. I'm fine with where it's at right now. Mm-hmm. And let me say this. That's why I said that. Because you uh-huh. seem like you have identified the relationship with your father as an area that could use improvement. Oh, yeah. And you also seem like, but I'm okay with where we at right now. Yep. Like, I'm cool with it. And, and very and, cool with it. And that's why, like, I am, I, I reserve saying that how do you experience warmth? How do you experience trust? Like, because I don't necessarily know if you into that. Like, I don't know if that's fundamentally like. Oh no, I can be, like you said, I can be very warm. I can be very trusting, but it's in places where I'm interested in. Yes. Like, so the reason for why you're not necessarily getting the warmth and things of that nature is because the nature of this conversation is one where I've given that warmth, I've given that trust, it's been broken, so I'm not interested in that no more. And I didn't necessarily mean from your father, I meant just from others, right? Like, oh, from others, it, it, yeah, it's very individualized because to me, it's about okay, what's my history with you? What's my you know, interaction with you? I'm very warm with people on an initial because they haven't given me any reason not to be. Mm-hmm. But I will admit, you give me a reason not to be, then that's it. 
Yeah. I'm very clear in that. Yes, but and and let me say this: if you hadn't, we would have still known because when we talk about the relationship with your mom and dad, we're talking about two foundational relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, every relationship you have outside of that, elements of those two relationships will bleed mm-hmm. into it. So, like, not to say that they're going to be identical, but they're they won't be so different that we won't understand that this same person has these two relationships. Like, oh, yeah. they won't be so different. Oh yeah, trust so me. If you, I see elements you, of my parents and yeah. people, oh you, trust me, it's it's very easy to be like, oh no, know where this is gonna go. You cut people short a little faster than you used to. I'm like, I can't do it. I'm fully aware of that. Oh yeah, there been there have been people who I've worked with where I'm like, oh, I see how this is going to operate. Nope. You got pets. I can't have pets. Allergies. You got plants. They die. <laughs> Woo! You read a lot of books? Tons. There we go. Got to get you something to do, man. <laughs> Woo! Something that come alive in there. He's an activist. I was about to say, I work all the time. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. Busy, busy. Always. Always. Lot of help. Oh yeah, work work most definitely helps because at least I'm working towards and building something, mm-hmm. right? It goes back to that whole foundational piece. When you come from a broken one, you don't want broken ones, so you work very hard to make sure that those are built. Mm-hmm. So yeah, oh trust me, I have been through therapy several times. I have identified a lot of these patterns. And I definitely know my parents and my family is one that is always going to be a trigger for me because it's a lot. It's a lot that's there. Yeah. And so, you know, even when even when people want to bring up my mom and things of that nature, they can. But one thing that I'm very, very clear about is I don't engage in revisionist history. So if you're about to give me a revisionist history of who she was and not hear my side of the story. Yeah. I'm not engaging in that conversation. No, I feel it. And the same thing with my dad is then that's one of the reasons for why him and I have the relationship that we do is because of the fact that there's things that he's he is not willing to hear my perspective fully. And so therefore I'm like, okay, nope, not engaging in that. And the same thing when in terms of there are certain conditions that I need to meet because once again, we had a contract. You broke the contract. So now I'm redoing the contract and you either uphold those terms or this ain't happening. And that's my way of creating the safety that I need for myself. The condition. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like this. This could have been an unconditional love relationship. hmm that's not what this was. That's not what this was built on. And therefore, we're not going to, you know, try even remotely to go down that road. Because try as I have, because I have several times. And I'm like, you broke it. And you break it not in small ways. You break it in very, very big ways. So therefore, you have demonstrated you can't handle this. <laughs> So hence, I got to operate in the way that I got to operate to make sure that I'm cool. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a you know because uh, one of the central questions I think you had asked me was how do you survive all this? Sometimes you got to be in the survivalist mentality, and that's what gets developed, and that really is what is developed for me. Is I have got to do what I have to do to survive, and that can't be on the basis of other people because I went through that. I know what that's like. And that's not a life that I ever want to try to go back to. Because if you give someone else that much control of your life and that your survival is literally depending on their whims and things of that nature, you'll never be happy. You'll never feel secure in yourself. You'll never feel safe. I feel it. I feel it. And there's no, yeah, there's no way that I could ever go back to that. And they got to deal with it. If I have to deal with the impact that all these factors, all these things have done, and I'm just left to deal with it, then that means you have got to deal with the ramifications of how I feel about that. And one last thing, I hate the word bitter because I can hear some of y'all wanting to, not necessarily y'all, but you know what I mean, just in general, <laughs> anyone who listens to this. Hey, you, you've heard that before. Oh, all the time. And I love it when people... He letting the people know, don't come for me this way. Right. Let me let you know one thing, because I hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, you bitter and all that. I'm going to be like this. Then you deal with it. Yeah. Until you know what this feels like, you don't get to judge it, because I'm not sitting here judging you. Mm -hmm. So hence, keep it to yourself. If this ain't your cup of tea, go get another one. Chamomile, whatever you want. (laughs) But this tea gonna be a little bitter, and it's fine. I'm okay with bitter. I'm fine with bitter. Uh, but I think it comes back to what I said initially, like, but the hurt. Oh yeah. But like, I think that um, because almost like a secondary emotion, like being bitter is just like, and I'm not using that language again. Oh, you said that, but like, like the hurt is evident. Oh yeah. And, and so, and, and being bitter is a result of hurt. And so for me, I think like it, it, it's more, and, and you've done work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that you've learned to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, survival mode can be a very um, problematic mode too, though, right? Like oh, yeah. Just physiologically what it does to us. Um, Answer three times. <laughs> yeah. But really healing the hurt is just a longer process, I think. And, um, you know, I often sometimes will tell my patients, like, depending on how old, like, look, you're 45. You've been dealing with this for 45 years. We are not about to change things in a month. Right. <laughs> like, period. Like, like, this, is not, like, this is not an overnight fix. Oh, no. So, um, as I was about to say, you thinking you hearing hurt now? Imagine how much this was years ago. Sure. I'm, I'm not. I do a funny one for y'all. So, um, this is when I'm 21. So, at this particular point, my mom has passed away. Um, my dad has now remarried, mm. and I am myself in a sense, or at least starting to try to figure out myself. Uh, came home for Easter. 
you know, and remember my dad's a deacon, so he's all big into the church and things of that nature. Came in a wonderful form-fitting suit. I looked cute. I will fully admit I looked very cute. <laughs> uh, but when I got there, and this goes back to your point, my dad did not want me wearing that suit because that's not what he thought men should wear. Mm-hmm. So it goes on this whole thing about how I need to change clothes. I was trying to be very steadfast, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, you know, wear what I wore. My sister, my stepmom begging me to change clothes because he wasn't willing to budge on this. So, you know, here I am. And this is once again, one of those things where it's like, okay, when do you budge? And when do you not? So at this point, I made the choice to budge. So I changed clothes. We go to church. Get through all the, you know, the whole thing. Get all the way up to the benediction. By this point, my mom, my stepmom and my dad have gone to the back because they're a part of the finance committee to count up the money from the offering. Minister gets up, makes us all get up, and he's all like, I want to send a special shout out to all of our college students. Don't want to name any names because I don't want you to think Minister forgot about you, but brother. So he calls me out, and I'm like, okay, this man's going to call me out in the middle of church. Fine. Uh, hey, Minister, how you doing? He's a, this is in front of the entire church. So he's but, like, but hey, Minister, how you doing? This is hmm? Easter? This is, yeah, this is Easter Sunday. Okay. So he's like, I'm like, hey, Minister, how you doing? He's like, we ain't seen you in a while. And I'm all like, yeah, no, I've been busy with school and things of that nature. And then he says the following. I hear you're getting married. <laughs> As we all know, in a good old black church, you hear about a marriage announcement, what are you going to hear? Ooh, and all this other kind of stuff. So me, I say the following. No, no, no. I'm not getting married. It's not legal in this state yet. Little hush. And then, of course, you know, because like you said, I ain't no angel, especially at this particular point in my life. I was like, uh, and for those of you who don't understand, you'll understand by the time you get home. Mm -hmm. By that point, they knew what I meant. Mm Mm-hmm. So, my dad, it gets back to my father that I have said this. And, of course, he's not happy with me. But the thing that I made it known to him was, look, I can change my clothes. I'm not changing who I am. Mm -hmm. And it's things like that where I'm like, okay, I gave up a significant portion of my life trying to be what you want me to be. That didn't serve me. It's not serving you. It's not serving this relationship in any way. I'm now trying to figure out who I am and I'm trying to deal with all this. And then you want me to come in here and lie about myself for whose comfort yours, definitely not mine, but I'm not going to allow other people to just operate with me and your lie for your comfort. And you got to learn that lesson. You learn that Sunday. The doors of the church are open. Is there one? Mm. And and I'm just curious. So, what was the conversation like? How did your father? Well, also, he told people you were getting married. Mm-hmm. That was the first lie that my fa- my father had ever told people about me. He told people I was at a different institution than the one that I was at. He told people that I was pursuing degrees that I wasn't pursuing. He was telling people all sorts. There was all sorts of things that he just wasn't accepting it wasn't full i mean it's so that's what i was like this is your own thing but what you're gonna learn is that i'm gonna be me
And so what did he say afterwards? Like when he like, and your really is, how could you do that and you know say all that? And then that's when I told him what I told him. And then after that, I got in my car and I went home. Mm -hmm. I was like, what else is there to say? Because like there's only so many times you can deal with that, right? There's only so many times that you can put yourself through that. And that's my biggest thing is that I don't want to ever go through those experience. It's already bad enough that there are a lot of experiences in this life that you have to go through for the sake of survival. And that's one thing if you're getting something out of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's another thing when you're putting yourself through something and you're not getting really anything out of it. And then it's like, well, why go through that? Mm -hmm. And so that's how it's operating for me now is that I'm not going to put myself through an experience where I'm just going to be experiencing pain for the sake of experiencing pain. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's what a lot of family gatherings and things of that nature can often be is, oh, I'm going, I'm expected to either be quiet, silent, disregard, not be honest, any of those things for y'all's benefit. Why should I put myself through that? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Offer that wonderful additional experience. Like I said, I got plenty of stories. Plenty of stories. Well, one of the things that, and y'all, this has come up in our conversation recently, and you talked about this. And I'm also, I want to be sensitive to this. My This is not necessarily my space, but I know that um, Prof and I have talked about this um, recently, mm -hmm. and he's brought it up. Um, so I'm going to throw it out there y'all um and then i'm kind of scared this. <laughs> so, but um one of the things that we've talked about is um like no space for black men in particular to talk about their history of sexual assault and sexual abuse mm -hmm. and um that it is just a conversation i think just in general like girls are a lot of space to that is not talked about, period, right? Especially okay. in our communities. But I think that even for boys, there's less of a space. Or for men, there's less of a space to talk about that, right? And um, I don't... Like, how do we have these conversations? How do we create spaces um, for this frequent experience um, where we can heal Well, for one, I think, because it's such a layered answer, right? And it's such a layered situation. First and foremost, we got to be okay with talking about things. And we got to be okay with talking about things that are not pleasant. And then we also have to create a space where there's not going to be negative judgment with that, right? And right now, there isn't really that space, especially for men, to where we can talk about being sexually assaulted because it's so layered because then it's like oh then that goes against you being a black man that goes against your masculinity that goes against any of these other kind of things it's also layered so there doesn't become that protected space of being able to talk about it and then we all get judged because mm -hmm. of experiences because mm -hmm. i know i've definitely gotten judged negatively when i've talked about my own sexual 
assault and my own rape. And then now that has impacted, you know, my ability to do any number of things. And it's like, well, you should have gotten over that by now or, you know, other, you know, they know other people who, you know, got over it in a different way, but I'm like, but that's their process. That's how their ability to get over it. It may still impact me in some ways. And it's just a truth. So I just think that that's really, really hard for us to create a space, especially in the fact that it's so full of judgment. It's so full of things that are assigned to it that it makes it really, really hard for people to share. Because, like, I'll say this, you know, 21 years old when I got raped, it was my first sexual experience ever. And it happened. And I did at the time because it was me and another man. I didn't feel comfortable with being able to report it to where it would be uh, safe or even accepted, even by law enforcement. Um, and then even talking about it to other people is very, very hard because of the experiences I have had with talking to other people about it. Um, it has come up in therapy, which has been very helpful because, you know, at least as someone who is at least expressing a way for it to be a place where you can talk about it, they can help you process it and things of that nature. That has definitely been very helpful. But I will say, in talking about it with other people, it gets very, very dicey when you talk about it because their reactions to it can vary. Mm -hmm. Their um, responses to it also vary. And, you know, that can even be in when you try to establish intimacy with another person. Sure. And that, and let me tell you, that type of rejection and that type of negativity that you can get from that, it hurts. And then it makes it really hard for you to then feel the need and feel comfortable with then expressing it to someone else. It take it takes a different level of courage for men to be uh, vulnerable about being sexually exploited um, in a society in the world that is patriarchal and where men take pride in sexually exploiting others. It just goes against everything it means to be a man, you know, mm -hmm. stereotypically that you let somebody man you you know um, i was over here thinking when you was talking like i don't think i know a male today an african-american male um that has not been sexually taken advantage of um most of them you know when we were younger men by older women or uh, some mm -hmm. of them even by men you know what i'm saying like but i don't know one mm -hmm. you know this is like family this is friends like I don't know one who who, um, who was not you know sexually uh, abused, but if you talk to them, and this is almost down to a hundred percent of them, if you talk to them, um, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Like if you talk to them, like um, it was a long time ago, not a big deal. Um, they don't really think that the remnants, the residue of what happened to them still exists, still like live with them. They still carry it on. They think that, um, no, um, I just have sex. I just like to do this. I just like to do that. They don't think that the way that they was exposed to this behavior at such an early age has any influence on how they now engage in this behavior. Yep, all very true. And that's probably one of the more um, 
not more. That's one of the, probably one of the most significant conversations. I see black men not even um in a rush to kind of have. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. they, that's that's one of the least favorite conversations to have. Like almost like, man, what you talking about? Like um, they're just very dismissive of that type of abuse. Yeah, because in the ways in which it's going to come out and the ways in which they're going to express how they feel about it is going to go against all those mm -hmm. male things, right? It unmans you. Right. So hence the reason for why I think creating a space that um, facilitates the ability to be able to talk about that is going to require an amazing amount of courage. And I just don't know collectively if we're there. Mm -hmm. True. I agree. I agree. Men as a whole and black men specifically initially would have to increase in our emotional intelligence. Just fundamentally, mm -hmm. we, we, we lack as a group, as a cohort. We lack. Um, or I don't want to say like we are underdeveloped as it relates to like emotional intelligence and where we could and should be. Um, and then after we gain some emotional intelligence, then you have to then gain courage enough to be vulnerable with what you now know exists, what you now have the jargon and the language and the insight to, you know, kind of manipulate. Now you have to have the courage to do so. Mm -hmm. And that take a lot from, you know, black men who feel a certain way about their mother, but have never said out loud. And that'll be the first one that they say, I want to buy a house and car and I love her and mama, I did this, I'll forget. But they feel a certain way about her. They just never said out loud. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I shared a lot tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> this is people listening. People can have conversations, maybe, you know, intimately. Maybe it'll smart something in someone, you know. No. That's the hope. That's the hope. <laughs> um, even, you. Know, I mean, to just go back to that, I was thinking about... Um, as we're talking, obviously, I'm not a black man. Um, but the, the episode with my brother, um, which if you haven't listened to, it was a really good episode, Monte, the third episode. And, um, you know, this is someone that I've known most of my life. Um, he's been in prison a long time, but this is my brother, right? And that he talks about his sexual abuse in that episode very openly. Um, also, like you said, though, someone who's done a lot of work through the program he's in to have emotional um, intelligence, right? Um, but his thing, and he says this in the episode, was that like, I was in foster care. I know there's a conversation ain't nobody having that like most foster kids go through, if not all. I would argue probably all. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, I would have 90%. 
Like, unless you are raised in one family, like your entire, and even then, like, but as a foster kid, nah, they're all being molested by children, by adults, by, you know what I'm saying? But like, to think that this, this is my brother and we've never had this conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and really, and like, so I, I, I didn't share this then, but like just really feeling fortunate that like he was willing, he's so open about his experiences and thinking, but like, I'm this is probably one of the people that um, I'm closest to in my life and that um, he's never talked to me about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, And if I could just think about like, just, you know, we, we talked about um, how hmm, just, we got to have more conversations, you know, mm-hmm. we, 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 we've got to stop minimizing and normalizing these very painful experiences, um, the sexual assaults, the, um, that it ain't just. We were talking about what's his name, um, the actor Terry Crews, Terry Crews. Mm-hmm. like as one of the men who came out during the Me Too, you know, talking about and that as a black man he didn't have the space mm-hmm. to talk about what happened to him up until that moment. And honestly, I don't even know if he still has had the space. Like I don't know. I think that there still was a part that what he was afraid of still happened. Mm-hmm. Like this big, strong black man, how dare you act like a victim? How dare you act like somebody, like you could have beat his ass. So yeah, we we just got to do better. At least we got to say it out loud at this point. That's that's the, yeah, that's do. just the bottom line of all, all this, right? We all are on a journey just trying to do the best with what we got and just trying to do better. Yeah. You just got to be committed to actually doing better. Or as you mentioned, interested in doing better. Mm-hmm. We need to be okay with people being messy. What I mean by that is the fact that you're all dealing with things. We all have our things in our past. We're all trying to do the very best that we can. And we have to be okay with that. Yeah. I think too often we get caught up with having to be, you know, the quote unquote perfect victim or the quote unquote perfect symbol or perfect vessel or any number of those other things. No, you just need to be yourself. Okay. And everything that is encompassed within that, you know, if you got anger, you got anger, you'll work on it as best as you can or you won't, Mm -hmm. but you got to be yourself. And as long as you're doing that, you're doing what it is that you have to do. Yeah, and that's the one thing I would leave people with. This was good. Good. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing. And um just really telling your phenomenal story. Really hope I think that this will touch people. And I hope so. This is about we really just like getting into our story. Cause we uh-huh. messy. <laughs> we are a mess. Like, we are right. But there's beauty in that. Exactly. There's a lot of beauty in that. And you just got to be okay with it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but no, we really appreciate you um, for being a listener, for coming on and um, sharing your story with us. Prof, what you got? No, I, I want to just echo that, man. I appreciate you coming on, being vulnerable. You know what I'm saying? Telling your side of your truth. And 
I'm appreciative that we got the dialogue and go back and forth and you're not bitter. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, man. And, you know, just telling your story how you feel and, and how you say about it. Um, um, I remember watching a man scream at the top of his lungs and he was saying, I'm not angry. And, um, you know, that's quite co- confusing to a lot of people, but just to appreciate that man's experience, mm-hmm. like, this ain't what angry looked like. You know, I had the privilege of talking to that man a few weeks later and he said, I wasn't angry. Mm-hmm. He was serious. You know, he was talking to me calm. He said, when I get angry, I talk calmer than how I'm talking to you right now. Mm. Right. Like I, and and it, I was, I, I gained a little bit of insight just to appreciate how other people experience their emotional, you know, situation. Like, even though I'm looking at this group of Haitian Americans frail late arms and talk irate and have loud engagement and I think they're about to fight, they really saying, man, I love you and you need to come over my house at mm-hmm. the end of, you know, the football game. And my inability to appreciate the culture, to appreciate the, the, the people, the individual members, their individual experiences actually limits me on what I think I'm perceiving. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I come to a very narrow-minded conclusion of what I think this person is experiencing. And, you know, how you can just tell your story is necessary because like that man say, I may look angry because y'all used to look at an anger like this, but I'm not angry. When I get angry, it looks like this. Like, you know, and you're not bitter. Your bitter may just have a different face on it. That's cool. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, um, like we always say, we want to encourage everyone to go to therapy. Um, Telehealth. T- yes, yes. Zoom. Right now. Taraji P. Henson got a um, free um, counseling and therapy. And um, if you're a mental health practitioner, you should sign up to do it for free because black people need it, you know. And if you need it, you should sign up and get you some free therapy. Um, we all need it. We all need it. We all need it, yes. Yeah, so there ain't no if. It's, uh, you got to be in the mood. but don't act but you need it you might not be in the mood and that's okay everybody got their own process um it could be a lot it's a lot to desire to gain insight not everyone is interested so not everyone um or not everybody thinks that there's something that they need to change but we telling y'all or that they need to work on everybody got something to work on so unless you're perfect and then, you know, that's the thing. But um, we love y'all. I love you. Um, I love you. Thank you. We love you. Thank you for coming on. Um, and we will reach out to y'all later.